you have a Bible, you can open to John's Gospel, chapter 12. We'll look at verses 12 through 16 this morning, taking a little bit of a break from Matthew's Gospel uh, for Palm Sunday. And then also again uh, next week for Easter. So John 12, uh, let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we are slow to listen to you and quick to forget what you have said to us. So we pray that you would do a wondrous work in us through your spirit as we consider your word this morning so that our hearts are opened to you, so that we would hear you and be changed by your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So they call this the triumphal entry. Uh, This is the the fanfare with the palm branches, uh, which sort of symbolize uh, victory. It's how you celebrate a victorious king. Uh, The fanfare there with these palm branches is why we call this Palm Sunday today. So this this is the beginning of the week of the annual Jewish festival of Passover when the lambs are sacrificed in commemoration of the Exodus when God had delivered his people from Egyptian oppression. Big event in the life of the history of the people of Israel in their national life. And it's the week uh, that ends with Jesus' crucifixion. Everything in his life has been leading up to that point. Uh, He's been saying some strange things, telling people that he had come to give his life as a ransom for many, foretelling his own death and then resurrection. Uh, Things, there's strange things that even his closest disciples were completely mystified about. Right? So, and, and now he comes to Jerusalem. It's the city of the kings of old. Approaching from the east, from the Mount of Olives, uh, where one has a majestic view of the splendor of the city, particularly the great temple, which to the Jews is just the heart of the glory among the kingdoms of the earth. And so this crowd uh, that's gathered had heard about Jesus. They'd heard great things about Jesus, even if they haven't understood all of his teachings. They've heard great things. The atmosphere in the city was electric with anticipation of his arrival, so much so that his enemies became worried started talking to him about, uh, you know, quieting this, this crowd. Even Jesus himself calls attention to the occasion, to the momentousness of this occasion by arranging for his transportation in fulfillment of an ancient prophecy, you know, coming in on this donkey's colt, prophecy from Zechariah 9, which identifies him. So he's identifying himself. He's calling attention to his identity as the long-awaited Lord come to save his people. The people roll out the red carpet, so to speak. I mean, they literally throw their clothes before him and palm branches are waving. And <clears throat> so they, they welcome him in a way fit for a victorious king, right? So he's greeted with the 
palm branches, and they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. That is a cry of desperation. It's not so much a cry of praise. It is in a sense, but it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cry of desperation. It means, oh, save us. Hosanna means, oh, save us. So they're calling out to Jesus using, this is a quote from Psalm 118, um, which says literally there, oh, Yahweh, oh, please save us. That's what it says in Psalm 118, literally, the Hebrew says, O Yahweh, O please save us. So they're addressing to Jesus this prayer to God for salvation. They, they certainly were speaking better than they knew. This crowd would not have explicitly equated Jesus with God. In fact, that's why Jesus is murdered later, uh, because he equated himself with God. So they wouldn't have done that, not knowingly. They spoke better than they knew. In a few days' time, this people, the people of this very city, would call for his blood. They'd call out, crucify him. Uh, away with this man, release to us Barabbas. Give us, instead of this guy, we want the violent revolutionary who says he's going to lead us to uh, freedom from Roman oppression. Uh, his blood be on us and on our children. They cry out things like that, which are crazy, terrible things. <laughs> that they're crying out. When they welcome Jesus into Jerusalem and cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel, they thought they were getting themselves a king like all the other nations, a king like any other king. Uh, Luke calls attention to this point in his gospel. He says in chapter 19, they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. They spoke truth when they quoted the scripture, but they didn't know what they were saying. They had the language right, but they had misconceptions of the meaning of it. They wanted a king, just for the same reasons everybody else wants a king, to advance their agenda in the world. To do what they thought was good, to do what they thought was right and necessary and relevant. They wanted a king just like all the other kings in this world, only the best of them. Better, stronger. Right? It had been a problem for the people of Israel for, I mean, the whole life of the nation, really, uh, over a thousand years. First uh, Samuel 8, which Bill read from our Old Testament reading, uh, the elders of Israel told the prophet Samuel they wanted a king like all the nations. We want to be like all the other nations. We want a king like all the other nations. God said they wanted this because they rejected him. Their desire for a king like all the other nations was a rejection of him as their king. And so the prophet warned them that what they were asking for really was an oppressive strongman who ruled through coercive power and violence, who would take and take everything they had, everything that was most precious to them, until they realized too late that they had chosen slavery for themselves. They didn't care. They, they insisted, no, there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations. They repeat this. And that our king may go and fight our battles. Right. So there was no difference between the people of Israel and the other nations. 
they saw their problems the same way everybody else saw their problems. They thought of solutions in the same terms as everybody else on the planet thought of what, you know, what would fix things. We need someone to advance our interests over against others who threaten us. If only we had a strong prince to lead us to victory in war. That's what they wanted, just like everybody else. That's not just ancient Israel. This is Israel today. This is in the writings of Christian nationalists today. If only we had a strong prince, like all the other nations, but bigger and better, to lead us to victory in war. Israel got their king, they got Saul, who was a big man, right? Someone uh, that other world leaders would fear to mess around with, or who would make other leaders respect Israel by force if necessary. And he turned out to be a capricious, violent tyrant who did not, in fact, deliver on their hopes and expectations. So God gave them a king of his own, a king... None of them would have expected or chosen. Someone who didn't fit their categories for a strong, impressive world leader. Just a shepherd, really. A foolish choice if you want to be just like all the other nations. But God prospered David, this little shepherd boy. He prospered the people through David to show his people the folly of their desire to be like all the nations. He did it to God gave them David. To teach them the goodness of his alternative kingdom, which is truly unlike anything else in this world. It's a difficult lesson to learn. They never really learned it. In fact, uh, they ended up completely misinterpreting God's work and could only conceive of David as the prime example of exactly the kind of king they were looking for. That's what it seems like he is. God gave them a different kind of king when he gave them David. But they said, look, it's the king we've always wanted, doing what we always wanted. They were blinded by their expectations. They did not recognize the qualities of the king that God had provided. And by Jesus' time, they longed for what they thought, another David, the son of David, right? To come and deliver them from the Romans by force, to reestablish what they saw as the golden age of their nation when they were a nation like other nations, only better and stronger. They didn't realize that David's kingship had always been a divine critique of that vision of kingship. So, they didn't realize that the prophecies of the son of David who would come to establish the kingdom of heaven, this alternative kingdom, it would be completely out of alignment with their hopes and expectations. They did not realize that they were supposed to be looking for something of a surprise. So when Jesus came onto the scene, as he does here, coming into Jerusalem on that, in that uh, triumphal entry, they thought, now, here is someone who can gather the crowds, army-sized crowds, and he can provision his armies with just a bit of bread and fish. Feed thousands of people, provision his armies. He's got the moral high ground to inspire his followers. He can heal the wounded or even raise the dead with a touch. Who could stand before an army with Jesus at the head of it? 
His troops will be well fed and they will never die. If Jesus were a king like other kings, if his kingdom were just like all the nations, not even the terrible power of Rome could stand before him. Domestically, he would bring great prosperity. On the foreign front, he could conquer all the nations. As a political leader, he could actually fix what's wrong with the world. Hosanna, save us, O Lord. Save us by doing what we think would fix the world. Save us by fulfilling our political agendas, our ideas of what is relevant. Save us from earthly injustices and from poverty. Save us from all suffering, from anything that makes life unpleasant. Save us from prom- uh, by promoting the interests of your people over against all those bad people over there in other nations. Save us in really impressive ways that show others that you are obviously a great king over a great nation. But here he comes riding a humble donkey instead of a war horse. And all along the way, his life has been faithfully this divine critique of our visions of kingship and power and salvation. He came to be our king, all right, but that means nothing like what we think it means. He came to save us, all right, but his salvation is quite unlike what you'll find promised by world leaders. If you think Jesus would make a great world leader, president of the United States, that he could really fix the world if he were in that office, if he had that power, then uh, you should ask yourself if you really understand Jesus at all. In fact, I think that's the kind of thing that this crowd in Jerusalem thinks. He'd make a great president, a great king of our nation. And they're all about to be severely disappointed, so disappointed that they will call for his crucifixion. They're happy to employ the violent methods of Roman oppression. That's what crucifixion is, Roman. Worldly oppression and violence to be just like all the nations. They want to be just like all the nations in order to be rid of this king that they reject. And that's what it means when the people clamor for Jesus to be a king like all the other kings. It means they actually reject God. They actually reject God's kingship and God's king. What kind of king do you want Jesus to be? Would you ask him to do the very same kinds of things that your unbelieving friends and neighbors would ask him to do? If you think Jesus should be the kind of king who saves you by doing what you think he should do to fix the world, who saves you by fulfilling your political agendas or your ideas of what really would be helpful or relevant, the kind of king who saves you from earthly injustice, earthly poverty, earthly discomfort, earthly suffering, who saves you by promoting your interests over against those of others, who saves you in really impressive ways that makes it obvious to others that they should follow him. In fact, then you are rejecting Jesus and his true kingship for for this vision of kingship and salvation that's just like what everybody else has. Here are some diagnostic questions for you. What do you think is really wrong with the world? Is that the same thing your unbelieving friends and neighbors think is really wrong with the world? What do you think will really fix the world? Is it the same thing as your unbelieving friends and neighbors think will really fix the world? 
Do you have the same basic hopes and expectations as people who openly reject Jesus? How about we let Jesus tell us who he is, what he came to do, what his salvation really is? How about we let Jesus tell us what it means when we cry to him, Hosanna, oh, save us. Because like those people in Jerusalem on that day, uh, we're probably speaking better than we know, all of us. We're speaking better than we know when we ask Jesus to save us. We might be getting the language right, uh, but misconceiving the meaning to some degree. So we don't know what a good king should be or do, not instinctively. We don't know what we need saving from. We don't know what God's goodness will actually look like until we see it revealed in Jesus, in who he actually is, in what he actually did. And really, it's only after his crucifixion and resurrection that we can realize it. That's what's happening here at the end of this passage when it says his disciples did not understand these things at first. Not just the crowd. His disciples didn't understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So Jesus came... riding on a donkey because he's the king who comes to save us from our very conceptions of kingship and salvation. We think king comes on a war horse. No. There's something wrong with our approach to politics and power. There's something wrong with our vision of what's wrong with the world. There's something wrong with our ideas of what will fix the world. Jesus came to save us from those things that are so wrong with us. He came to show us that his authority is expressed not in coercive or violent power, but in humble service and self-sacrificial love. He came to show us that he is the king of heaven and earth, even if the nations of this world rise up against him and crucify him. That doesn't threaten his kingship. He came to establish a kingdom that is not about warring nations seeking to dominate each other in their rivalry. He came to establish a kingdom where people from every nation are welcome in peace, true peace. He came to bring cosmic restoration and peace, peace with God in ways that are truly inconceivable to us, things that can never be achieved through our visions of political power. Sinners don't want Jesus to be king. Sinners don't want his salvation because there's something wrong with sinners. We don't want true glory to mean humility. We don't want true royalty to mean service. We don't want true holiness to mean things like loving your enemies. We don't want to be told we need forgiveness more than we'll ever know. We don't want a radical transformation in the core of our being and our heart that is beyond our ability to understand or achieve. We just want to be, you know, picked up, brushed off, polished up a bit, put back on the high shelf, exalted, untouchable above everybody else thinks. That's what we want. I'll welcome someone as king if they play by my rules and give me what I want, but that's actually rejecting Jesus, who he really is. No one in Jerusalem truly welcomed Jesus for who he really is. But that didn't stop him from coming and doing what he came to do. It really was the triumphal entry. In spite of all the misconceptions, because the king had come, the Savior had come to do his work, 
it was impossible to stop him because he's the king and you can't stop him. All the misunderstanding of all the people wouldn't stop him. All their, their ill intentions wouldn't stop him. Nothing they could muster in their hearts, none of their schemes, none of their words, none of their actions could stop him. None of their sanctimonious compliance or flattery could stop him. None of their faltering weaknesses, none of their willful ignorance could stop him. None of their fearful efforts to control could stop him. None of their blatant treason could stop him. There is nothing in heaven or on earth, conceivable or inconceivable, that could deter the king from doing what he had come to do. He came to be rejected by sinners. Utterly and thoroughly rejected so that he might truly welcome us in God's eternal kingdom. We don't really understand what it means to welcome Jesus, but that doesn't matter. Through Jesus Christ, God has welcomed us. Jesus has reconciled us to the one who is at the heart of reality, to the triune God of love that we've all rejected in our sin, the one who we have refused to know or understand or relate to. Jesus has reconciled us to him. Jesus has shined the light of God into the darkness of our hearts and minds, and that is a wonderfully good thing for him to have done. His thoughts and his ways are higher than ours. They're beyond us, and that's great news for people like us. It's great news. His goodness is beyond our conceiving. That is great news. He overthrows all our expectations of him. That is good for us. He is the kind of king that even the angels are bewildered by. Pure beings with capacities for understanding far beyond our own who live in the very presence of the holy God find Jesus full of stunning surprises. We need to be saved from our presuppositions about him. And that's exactly the kind of savior this king is. Our greatest need is for a king who will take care of us better than we hoped or imagined, better than we even knew we needed, better than we could ever possibly take care of ourselves, better than we deserve. That's the kind of king we need. And we have him in Jesus. This king came. He came on his own terms. He came riding on his donkey. He went to his cross. He came to seek us and to save us with a salvation that we didn't even recognize We sought to establish our own ideas of what would fix the world, but all our efforts to reject his gracious rule, they've been overruled and overthrown and forgiven. And now it is ours to learn the surprising goodness of his ways, to wrestle with why he doesn't just fix our lives how we think he should, to learn how it is good for him to be the king that he is, even to speak better than we know as we bless him and praise his name. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are king of heaven and earth. Whether or not we acknowledge it or truly submit our lives to you, we pray that you'd make yourself known to us as you really are. By your spirit, open our eyes to recognize you, open our hearts to receive you as the good king you are. You laid down your life for us. There's no greater love than that. And so we lay down our resistance to you and we ask that you would conquer us by your love so that we can know true peace with God and with each other in your name. We pray that you would save us from our own faulty understanding of you, save us from our suspicion of you, save us from ourselves, save us for a relationship with God where we know you even as we're known by you. We pray in your name. Amen.